a magazine cover in one of the grocery stores had a couple on the front. And the picture was worth a thousand words because when you look at the picture, there was this sort of lightning, almost like a lightning stroke, showing a partition between the two of them. And if you just look at the cover alone, you realize that what the magazine wanted to tell us was that these couple, this couple were no longer together again. They were no longer married. They'd broken up. And when I consider such a headline and such a picture, it comes home with force to us of the reality of alienation and separation in this world. It is very evident when you talk to people that there's great divide even in our own homes. Recently, a fellow died and his siblings didn't turn up. Not even to show their respect because they were angry with him. And he was angry with them. And there are millions of people who are not talking to their relatives. Parents are not speaking to children and vice versa. There's great divide, alienation in our world. But the greatest alienation that there is, is the alienation not from family and those who are relatives, but alienation from God. And the greatest reconciliation is not reconciliation between men, but the, the reconciliation with God. And the passage that was read speaks of this tremendous doctrine of reconciliation with God. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Colossians, says in verse 21 of chapter 1, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. The doctrine of reconciliation. It is surely true that reconciliation does not itself define all that there is in the gospel or in salvation itself. Because the work of our Lord Jesus Christ involves other elements like propitiation, which is the removal of divine wrath, or redemption, which is the deliverance that we receive. It involves this legal area of justification whereby we are declared righteous in the sight of God. But although reconciliation is not the end and be all of the salvation that was accomplished for us, it is the most intimate of blessings that we have received because we have been brought into a relationship with God. This term, reconciliation, refers to a change 
from enmity to friendship. We are reconciled when we have been changed and turned from our hostility to God and brought into a relationship of friendship. Now the Colossians were genuine Christians, but some of them had begun to imbibe a philosophy that Paul calls empty deceit and not according to Christ, as in chapter 2, verse 8. And the critical assumption is that the reason that they had turned away, they were imbibing strange teachings, whether they were pagan or Jewish in their manifestation, was because they had lost a sight of the grandeur and the luster and the beauty and the magnificence of Jesus Christ. And so in verses 15 to 20, he launches in this tremendous hymn, Christological hymn of praise to Christ, in which he portrays Christ as Lord, as God himself, Lord of creation and Lord of the church. And as part of the reflection upon the greatness of Christ, he mentions reconciliation as an accomplishment of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when he mentions reconciliation as one of the accomplishments of the Lord, in verse 20, he talks about a cosmic reconciliation. And by him, he says, to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. What he means there is that Christ has reconciled all things, all of creation, that the Death on the cross, the blood of the cross. And that's, a, that's, that's really a way of saying the blood that he shed upon the cross, referring to his death. That Christ brought about a cosmic reconciliation. That this world is fallen. Man is fallen. We are under the curse. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died not only to save us, but to bring this world into harmony with God to restore creation. That restoration has already been paid for, but will be ultimately revealed when Christ returns and this world has been purified. But the cross is also not only the means of restoration of the physical creation is under the curse, but the pacification of evil forces. Already Christ has triumphed over Satan and over hostile forces. But when he returns, he will put all enemies under his feet. Well, the cross is therefore the means by which he will indeed restore creation and pacify hostile forces. Well, the Apostle Paul, in picking up this language of reconciliation, does not merely refer to the cross as the means of cosmic reconciliation, but goes on to speak about personal reconciliation because the cross is not only the means by which Christ reconciles the cosmos, but it is also the means by which he reconciles us to himself. And this term reconciliation, uh, the noun form appears some four times in the Pauline epistles. Romans 5 verse 11 and 11 15 and 2 Corinthians 5 verse 18 and 19. The verb, katalasso, to reconcile occurs six times. You find it twice in Romans 5.10, 1 Corinthians 7.11, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18, 19, and 20. And we have the derivative, the intensified form of the verb, apple, 
katalaso. Used here in one in Colossians 1 20 and 121 and Ephesians 2 16. But we want to take a look then at this passage as Paul talks about personal reconciliation, the exchange of enmity for friendship, the moving away and turning us away from enmity against God to friendship. Well, really, there are at least three thoughts that are brought to the fore in these few verses here in verses 21 to 23. First of all, we see the source of reconciliation. Notice Paul, as he turns to this personal reconciliation, says, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. Paul is quite fond of this, at least practice, this device of of, of once and now. He Very often in his epistles, he, he would say, this is what you once were and this is what you now are. He, he opposes contrast so they can see the amazing grace of God to them. He tells, for example, the, the believers in, in, in Corinth, this is who you once were. But now you have been washed. You have been justified. This is what, you, what your life outside of Christ was like. But what, this is what you are now. That's what he's doing here. And he says to the Colossians, I want you to remember, this is what you once were. Well, what was their former condition? What was their state before they were converted? He says, you once were aliens. Alienated. And you who once were alienated, it means that they were separated from God. They had rebelled against him. They had turned aside to their own way. This was an alienation not essentially from their companions, though that would have been true, but they were alienated from God. And the twin epistle, and I said to you that Colossians and Ephesians are really twin epistles, emphasize that the alienation was from God. In Philippians 4 verse 18, Paul says, having their understanding darkened and being alienated from the life of God. They did not share the life of God. They were not in a relationship with him. He says, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of your heart. Now he defines their alienation further. For he says, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind. You were hostile in your mind. Now I know that there are many unbelievers who would come to a text like this and say, well, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not hostile to God. In fact, you might say that there are unbelievers who really don't care much about God. They will tell you, well, you know, I don't really have a personal feeling about God. I don't really like him, nor do I dislike him. And so you, they will say, well, but... How, how does this text relate to me, saying that you are hostile in your mind? It is important to note that the hostility that once characterized them and the hostility that characterizes unbelievers is not first an emotional antipathy against God. It is not chiefly emotional. It is, first of all, intellectual. Our alienation from God, our hostility to God begins in the mind. I am not suggesting that unbelievers love God emotionally, but I'm saying that the Apostle Paul 
roots their hostility and their enmity to God as that which is rooted in the mind, in the thinking. He says you were hostile in your minds. I believe it was Luther who says, Martin Luther, the great reformer, says that man in sin is bent in or curved in on himself. And if I may add, because man is curved in on himself, he is ultimately curved away from God. Hostile in our thinking. We do not have the mind of Christ. We do not think the thoughts of God after him. We do not embrace the ways of God. All our thinking is sin and self. It is this anti-God thinking, this refusal for God to reign over us. We don't have to think very hard about our life in sin. We didn't want God's way. Because we felt that to follow God's way is cramping our style. It's a joy killer to follow God's way. We were hostile. Our minds and our desires and our will was to do contrary to the revealed will of God. We believe that we have a right to determine how we live. And we do not want anyone else, not even God himself, to impose upon us a standard that is not our own. Because we are the master of our fate and the captain of our ship. Hostile in our thinking. And the writer says that our enmity and our alienation from God was characterized by this intellectual hostility and he says by wicked works. You see, hostility to God begins with the mind, with the heart and it manifests itself in our works. Jesus could say to those who were saying, Lord, Lord, away from me. Because while they were calling him Lord with their mouth, their actions, they were denying him by their actions. The sign that a man is opposed to God is not so much that he in his heart hates God emotionally, though that is true, but that his thinking is not in accordance with the will of God, nor is his practice How do you know when a person is an enemy of God and opposed to God? Because they will not do what God requires. You see it in action. Paul says, this is what you once were. You were enemies of God because your thinking was in contradiction to God's revealed will and because your actions were against God. So let me ask you, what is a friend of God? Or who is a friend of God? Are you a friend of God? Because friendship with God lies not in the emotion. You can have warm and cozy feelings about God. You can say God and I are pals. We are bodies. None of people think that God is their body. They're not in good relationship with him because they're not thinking God's thoughts. They're not obeying his will. A sign that you are a friend of God is that you will think his thoughts and you will do his will. This is the past condition. 
But mercifully, he turns from the past and he turns to the present condition and he says this. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by your wicked works, yet now. He says, well, that's in the past. That's what you were. You were enemies. You were hostile in your thoughts. You were hostile in your actions. But that is in the past. But this is what you are now. Thank God for, for the now. Thank God we are not what we once were. Thank God that we have been delivered from that past. But he says, yet now he has reconciled. That they're now in a reconciled relationship with God. They've now come, not that they have ceased to be hostile, because reconciliation does not mean a cessation of hostility. It means friendship. Coming into a relationship of friendship, and with it the blessings that they have characterized of love and of faith and of hope. These are those who are partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. These are those who are rescued from the power of darkness and conveyed into the kingdom of his beloved son. They are friends of God. But I've talked and I've suggested to you that the source of reconciliation is God. And you once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked work, yet now he has reconciled. Well, to whom does the he refer? I would suggest to you that he refers to God the Father, that he is the one who initiates reconciliation. The source of reconciliation is God. And you know that by reading earlier in verse 19. For it says, for it pleased the Father. It pleased him, it pleased God. That in him all the fullness should dwell. That in him that is in Christ all the fullness should dwell. And by him to reconcile all things to himself. It pleased the father that by Christ he might reconcile all things to himself. God then is the source of reconciliation. And this is even made clearer elsewhere in the Pauline literature. It's important when we study Pauline doctrine that we, even though we are in a biblical text, we look at what he says in other texts. Because sometimes what he writes elsewhere elucidates what is not very clear in a particular passage. You have to use the analogy of faith, using scripture to interpret scripture. So we read elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 and following. In another glorious text on reconciliation. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. When you are saved, you are changed. You are a new person. You have new attitudes. New responses, new desires, new way of living. You aren't, you aren't perfectly new, but you're brand new. You're a new person. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself 
through Jesus Christ. Here, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 clearly teach that it is God who has reconciled us to himself. In chapter 5 verse 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He is the one who brings us into this relationship of friendship. You know, generally, when there is a problem between two people, who do you expect to go and make amends? If somebody comes and insults you, the burden is upon them to repent, to take steps, to remove and deal with the problem. But God did not wait. We are the ones who are the offender. God is the offended. But God, the offender, did not wait for us, the offenders, to come and to seek peace. He took proactively the step to reconcile us. Reconciliation then is the work of God. It's the work of God the Father. And it's a work that is rooted in his love. You can read in Romans chapter 5. If you go back to Romans chapter 5, you will see that it is God who reconciles us and reconciles us because of love. In verse 8 of Romans 5, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were all still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The question has been asked, and it's been a question that has exercised theological discussions as to whose hostility was removed in reconciliation. Was it our hostility to God that was removed or God's hostility towards us? Was it we who were reconciled to God or God reconciled to us? Well, I'm of the opinion that Robert Raymond is correct, that there is a twofold nature to alienation. It is not simply that man is alienated from God. Yes, we reject him by the hostility of our minds and by our actions. But God himself is alienated from the sinner. The sinner's alienation from God is unjustified and unholy. That is, he has no reason to pick a fight with God. He has no reason to turn away from God's way. It's unjustified and it's unholy. But God's alienation from us is both holy and justified. Because it is our sins that separate us from God. So the Bible reminds us that God is angry with the wicked every day. But God cannot look upon sin. God cannot approve of our sins. So God himself is alienated. And even though we are reconciled to God, we are brought back to God and brought into a friendship with God, the reconciliation is essentially God's enmity that is first of all removed. That, that is, what I'm, what I'm arguing is that in reconciliation, 
the scriptural emphasis is not, first of all, upon our enmity removed with regards to God, but God's enmity removed in regards to us. In reconciliation, then, the way, the preponderance of the biblical evidence is that Christ has reconciled God by removing the wrath of God by his work. We then are brought into relationship with him at conversion by faith and by the work of the Spirit. Well, if the source of reconciliation is God, the means of reconciliation, as I have intimated, is elsewhere, here and elsewhere, emphasized as the death of Jesus Christ. Our text says, And you once were alienated and enemies in your minds by wicked work, yet now he has reconciled. And in verse 22, he tells us the means. If, indeed, the source of reconciliation is God, the means of reconciliation is Christ and his death. He says that we have been reconciled now, and then in verse 22, in the body of his flesh, through death. He's telling us how God went about reconciling us, bringing us into a relationship of friendship with himself. He did it, he says, in the body of his flesh through death. Well, however you read that, it is to be seen as synonymous with the expression in verse 20 when he says, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace, and here it is, through the blood of the cross or through the blood of his cross. So what I'm arguing is that to be reconciled in the body of his flesh through death is the same thing as having made peace through the blood of his cross. What the writer does in verse 22 is reminding us that our reconciliation came at a high price. That we were brought into a relationship of friendship with God in the body of his flesh. He's emphasizing that peace with God was not achieved by some high-level delegation from heaven coming and sitting down and thrashing out the issue with us and coming to some kind of compromise. No, peace with God was achieved through the physical suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the body of his flesh. It is, in other words, by his physical suffering and death on the cross, by the blood of the cross, by the giving of his life in death, that is how we have been brought into a reconciled relationship with God. That peace with God was purchased at a high price by the death of Christ. This is what Paul insists upon. I mentioned in Romans 5, he says, for if when we were enemies, we were, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Romans 5, 10 and 11. It is by Christ's death. It is important to note that in this context of reconciliation, there is a link between Justification and reconciliation. If you go back to Romans chapter 5 verse 1. 
Paul says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That is, justification is the root of peace with God. And what, what does that mean? It means that if we are to be reconciled with God, the legal problem must be first solved. You see, you and I, in, outside of Christ, were in a legal quagmire. In other words, God had a legal case against us. We were seen as rebels, as those who had disobeyed his rule, and we were under the curse and the sentence of the law. And that is what Christ has come to do. He has come to settle the case that God had against us. And he settled the case against us, not by contravening law, but by taking the full wrath of the law, by taking the full sentence of the law upon himself, that is death on the cross. He died legally, bearing our guilt, bearing our sins, even though he knew no sin. He became a sinner in the eyes of the law. Because he shouldered our sins. If you want to understand the cross, you have to see it as God's legal execution of justice upon Jesus Christ for our sins. And it is because the demands of the law have been satisfied. That we have now been in Christ declared righteous. You see, God has said to us now, the case between you and me has now been solved because of the cross. You have been justified, you have been let go, you have been freed. You have been declared righteous, not guilty. And it's only because God has pronounced us not guilty that is justified that we can now have peace. What I'm saying, you cannot have peace with God. While there is a case against you, while there is a legal charge from the court of heaven against you, you cannot have peace. Your problem, your legal problem with God must first be settled and then there is peace. And that's what Christ has done. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It is Jesus Christ who came. He did not sweep our sins under the carpet. He did not unilaterally with divine, by divine fiat, declare us reconciled. He, in the body of his flesh, by death, that is death upon the cross, it is he who reconciled us because he satisfied the law, declared us righteous, and because of that we have peace with God. And so the cross then, which deals with justice, Removing God's wrath has reconciled us because Christ became a curse for us dying on the cross. Now, thirdly, we've seen something of the source of reconciliation being God himself in his love and the means of our reconciliation being Christ and his work on the cross. But the goal of reconciliation is now Stated, he says that we have been reconciled, in verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death. And then he tells us the goal of this reconciling work achieved by Christ. Here it is, he says, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. What is the goal of our, of our reconciliation? It is presentation. The reason that Christ has come 
to bring peace between you and God is that he might be able to present you holy and without blame before him. To present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the judgment seat. The goal of reconciliation is eschatological presentation. Let's be clear that all of us will be presented before God at the judgment seat. I don't believe in cremation. It's not the biblical way that we deal with the dead. They're buried. But really, it doesn't matter whether a person is cremated, eaten by fish at sea, or buried in some other way. All men will be brought back, and all men will be presented before Christ. There is no escaping the judgment. And there is no escaping the judgment seat of Christ. The Apostle Paul says this to the Romans. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. There is a day of judgment. There is such a thing as accountability for life. We are not free agents. We are not autonomous agents. We are under the command and the ages of God. And he will bring every man to books. We must all give an account before him. And the books will be opened. So there will be a presentation. And Paul says that the goal of Christ reconciling us is that on that day when we are presented, we'll be presented holy and without blame. We're all going to be there. But we're not all going to be there in the same status. Some of us are going to be unholy and full of blame. And there are those who are going to be holy and without blame. This term, without blame, simply means Free from defect and without fault. The Apostle Paul actually uses similar language when he talks to the Ephesians. When he tells them the reason why Christ loved them. Husbands, he says, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Again, the same word, without blame. You see, this language of holy and without blame is a language used of the sacrificial animal in the Old Testament. Every animal that was dedicated to God had to be without blemish. And believers have been reconciled, they have been forgiven. They are being repristinated, they are being sanctified. We are being changed. And when we are presented before the Lord, we will be presented holy and blameless. Because then the work of sanctification would have been finished. 
we will be like Christ. You see, we have been converted, we have been changed, and we are now being made into the image of the new man, the second Adam. And this work is a lifelong task. We are not where we ought to be, but we are not where we once were, and we are being changed so that when we stand before him, we'll be holy and blameless. But what the writer makes clear, that though future purification is the goal, he makes clear that this goal cannot take place without our action. That presentation before the throne of God requires participation here on earth. So he says in our text, if indeed... Verse 23, you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Marvelous statement. He's saying the goal is to present you holy and without blame. But this is not a, a passive thing. It's not a matter of letting go and letting God You are to be involved in this work of holiness. You are required to be involved. And what are you supposed to do? He says, if indeed you continue in the faith. Paul is not doubting that they're going to continue. The conditional here does not mean that Paul is uncertain. But he's emphasizing that they have a responsibility. That they must also participate in holiness. And what must they do? They must continue in faith. In a sense, they must continue believing in Jesus Christ. But they must also continue in the body of truth, the faith that they have received. He says they must remain grounded. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast. This this word grounded is the word, at least in the original, refers to the foundation of a building. And what he's saying then, it means you must remain solid firmly grounded in your faith in Christ. You must remain steadfast in the things of God. Moreover, he says, negatively, not only are you to be steadfast and grounded and firmly rooted in your faith, but you are not to shift from the hope of the gospel. You must not abandon the gospel and the hope of eternal life that it brings. And he qualifies the gospel to which they should be loyal and to which they should remain firmly grounded. He says this gospel, he qualifies in three ways. He says this is the gospel that you have heard. You must remain in this gospel which you have heard. This is not a new gospel. This is the gospel that they were converted, by which they were converted. You know, you you and I are Christians. The longer we live as Christians, we don't graduate from the gospel. We go deeper into the gospel. We go deeper in the truths about Jesus Christ. He says you must remain loyal. Not turning away from the hope of the gospel. The gospel that you heard. There are too many novelties today in the Christian faith. Give us the good old gospel. There's nothing that can beat it. And if you depart from it, you depart from Christ. So he says you must remain Firmly rooted in this gospel, 
The gospel, he says, which you heard. Which was preached to every creature. This is the universal gospel. It's hyperbolic language. But it just means that this gospel has been preached by all the apostles in every part of the known world. This is the same gospel. And he says, of which, thirdly, qualifying the gospel, is the gospel of which I became a minister. Which gospel must they hold to and not depart from? The gospel they heard. The gospel which is preached to every creature and the gospel which the Apostle Paul serves. One of the scourges of life is loneliness. Prisoners who are put in isolation will tell you that spending a week or a month in isolation is the most horrible of experiences. And the most terrible experience we can have is to be separated from God. Do you know there is no medication you can take? There's nothing that you can do to overcome the loneliness of being separated from God. No amount of drinking or drugs, no amount of sex or pleasure can give the heart rest that is not at one with God. And the glorious news that you and I have is we are reconciled to God. We're no longer enemies, but friends of God. That just the way God looked at Abraham and saw Abraham as his friend, God looks at you now as a friend. Because we have been brought home. We were like the prodigal son, wandering away from God. But we have come home and we are friends with this almighty God. And you need to know that reconciliation is the answer to our loneliness. That in a world of selfishness, where people do not care about us. The true answer to loneliness is found in a relationship with God. And you and I who have been reconciled must find our joy first and foremost in knowing God and being friends with God. I'm not arguing that it is not important to have a community. I'm not arguing it's not important to have social interaction. But even before and above all of that is the interaction with God. Because when you are at peace with God, when you are in a relationship with him, when you know you are loved and accepted by him, there is a joy and a peace that comes to you even when you are alone. You see, even if you are a person who has lots of friends and you don't have Christ in the midst of the company, you're still alone. But on your own, knowing God, he brings a satisfaction and joy that cannot be brought by men. I'm not downplaying the need for human interaction, but I'm saying that the answer to loneliness is to be reconciled with God. And having been drawn into a relationship with God, we are to seek deeper communion. My friends, the, the reality of salvation is this, that God desires your company for time and for eternity. I must tell you that even with the best of friends, after a few hours, you go out for dinner, you talk about all kinds of stuff, even about biblical things, 
If you're being brutally honest, you want to go home. You even get tired of friends. And if you've been around the same friends for a long time, you hear the same jokes over and over. Well, sometimes we're tired of our own selves. And that God should desire your company. Wants to spend eternity with you forever and forever and forever. What an amazing thought. Never bored by you. Never tired of you. But delighting in you for eternity to eternity. That's what God desires. And you and I in this life who have been reconciled to God must seek a deeper friendship with God. To know him more. To love him more. To experience him more. We have been reconciled to God. But it's also important not only to think upon this reconciliation that God has wrought, but to appreciate the lens to which he has gone to reconcile us. You see, it is only when we appreciate how far we were from God can we understand how great his work in Christ was in bringing us near. The very reality is for God to overcome our sin, to look or to forgive our sins and to bring us in reconciliation, he had to have a remedy for our sins in Christ, his son. It took the blood of Jesus Christ. It took the son of God to come from heaven to live here for 33 years and to die a cruel death on the cross for us to have peace. And we must glory in Christ. We must revel in him. We must live each day praising him for the blood of the cross, for the body of his flesh in death that he gave that we might have peace with God. But we must also remember that our reconciliation with God through the blood of Christ is that we might be holy and blameless. And in order for that to occur, we must be steadfast in our faith. We must hold to the things we have received. We are to hold to the hope in the gospel. We are not to move away from the things of God. But we need to know that it is not essentially by our efforts that we will be presented holy and without blame. Even though we have a part to play, it is God who works in us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. That ultimately our perseverance in the things of God is by the grace of God. And that's why Jude could say, now to him who is able to keep you from falling. I think that the translation able is too weak. It means now to him who has the power not to keep you but to guard you from falling and to present you faultless. There it is again. Blameless. And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To him be the glory and the praise. You see ultimately Christ has reconciled us for the purpose that we may be holy.
it is God who has the power and will exercise it to guard us from falling that we might be presented blameless. One day you will stand before him blameless, innocent, forgiven of all sins and it will be because God is able by his almighty power to sanctify you and to guard you. May we live a life of praise for this tremendous work of reconciliation through Jesus Christ.